We are in the book of Judges. We are in chapter 1. We're going to do verses, we're going to go through verses uh, 9 to 20 today. 9 through 20, that'll be our text. This is part 2 of our study through the book of Judges. Part 2 begins right now. This is a time of transition for the people. It's a transitional time. And it's a transitional time because as Judges chapter 1 starts off, they have no leader. Joshua is dead. Verse 1, chapter 1. He's dead. They've got no leader whatsoever. The book starts off much in the same way the book of Joshua did. Moses, your leader, has died. The issue here is Joshua didn't name a successor. I don't think he should be criticized for that. As I said last week, he did the heavy lifting. He blazed the trail for the people to go into the land. Joshua focuses on the land, that is, the conquest of the land. Judges focuses on the settlement of the land. And yet, the people are in a very difficult position. Like I said, a transitional period, but more than just a transitional time. It is a time of crisis. It's a time of crisis for these people where they honestly are going, you're going to see some of the most self-destructive behavior of any Bible story. They're going to keep falling into sin. It's this perpetual cycle where the people will forget about God. They'll cling to idols. They'll make idols in their own life. And then God will punish them. God will raise up foreign nations to oppress them. And then, well, then they'll need God. And they'll cry out to God for deliverance. And God will raise up these deliverers. Or, as the title of the book is, another name, he'll raise up these judges who will deliver them militarily from foreign oppressors. And then they'll be good. They'll be on their best behavior for a while. And then it's going to repeat over and over and over again. Like I said, some of the most self-destructive behavior is going to be happening in this book. There are very few positive examples in this book. And as I said last week, the major theme of this story is the canonization of Israel. That's the theme. If you're taking notes, that's something good to remember. The canonization of Israel. And by the canonization of Israel, what I mean is that Israel is going to constantly struggle this self-destructive behavior, this perpetual sin pattern they keep falling to, is because of the canonization. That is, they are going to constantly be pulled by the world, constantly be pulled by the Canaanite nations away from God. That's the issue. And we saw that last week, early on, when Judah went up, and they defeated Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs, they cut off his toes. Of course, he responds, and he says, oh, well... God is repaying me. I've done this to dozens and dozens of other people. Because at that time, when you defeated a foreign nation, you take their king, you take their leader, and you would humiliate them. You would mutilate them. You'd torture them. And so they cut off his thumbs, they cut off his toes, and then eventually, later on in the story, he dies. And it wasn't really so much as cruel and unusual at that time, because everybody did it, but that was the whole point. Israel, you're not supposed to be like everybody else. You're supposed to be different. And throughout this story, this canonization, this pulling Israel away from God is going to happen over and over and over again. Well, that is what you missed last week and really kind of the, the main charting of this whole book. But today we begin in chapter 1, verse 9. And this is what it says in verse 9. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. Verse 9 here is going to function as a transitional kind of peace 
that introduces Judah's new phase, their new military campaign. This is the lowland campaign. Chapter 1, 1 to 8, that was really the highland campaign. Uh, and this is the lowland campaign. And so it introduces this new phase of the battles ahead of them. Then verse 10, And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly a Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai in Imon and Talmai. Now a quick note here on Hebron. Hebron's a very important city. It's 19 miles south of Jerusalem. And Hebron was actually the capital of Israel for seven years. King David set it up as the capital. You find this in 2 Samuel chapter 5, 1 to 5. But it was the capital because he wouldn't make Jerusalem the capital until seven years after making Hebron the capital. He had to go and reconquer it. And I say reconquer it because if you were here last week, you remember in verse 8, Judah defeated Jerusalem, but evidently they weren't able to hold on to it. And so Hebron, or Kiriath Arba, the ancient name, is what it is called. And the narrator, or Samuel, we're not 100% sure who the author of this book is. Most people think it was Samuel. So the narrator kind of is outlining this military movement and pattern for the people of Judah now in this story. Well, then we come to verse 11. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Kiriath Sefer, that is the city of the letter, the city of the document, possibly because it contained an archive or some sort of official library. But here again with Deber, in the same way he did with Hebron, the narrator is telling us the old name and the new name, which most likely is referring to the population shift. Like that's what it was called back then when those people lived there. Now this is what it's called now and now we live here. And what's going to happen in the subsequent series of verses is and has puzzled many people for a very long time. It's puzzled people because apparently the narrator is going to lift a story from the book of Joshua and then sit it down in the book of Judges, tucked between verses 12 to 15. Why does he do that? So he's going to employ, and we would call this if we were watching television shows, a flashback. It's, it's Once again, it's not uncommon entirely in the Bible for a biblical story to employ the use of a flashback. But it seems strange because the story starts off with Joshua dying, and yet now we're going to fast forward, rather rewind, back to a time when Joshua would have been alive during the time of Caleb. And as I said, it's puzzled readers why he would have done this. But I think one possibility in this story that we're about to hear with Caleb is Caleb provides a link with Joshua. Joshua's dead. They don't have a leader. But retelling this story provides a link because Caleb represents a generation that knew Yahweh. Caleb represents a generation who knew all the amazing things that Yahweh did. Caleb represents a generation not just that knew about Yahweh, knew what Yahweh did, but also a generation who obeyed Yahweh, who obeyed the Lord. And I think that is the point of this. In the contrast to the self-destructive behavior, which is going to perpetuate Israel throughout this book, the narrator gives us a really positive story here in linking the past with the present, in retelling the story of Caleb, Caleb when they took Deber. And so, verses 12 to 15 is... Some of the apex verses of today's sermon, most notable verses. We begin in verse 12. It says, 
And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Hmm. And Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother, so Kinaz is Caleb's younger brother, Othniel is his son, so Othniel would be Caleb's nephew. He gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife after he captured the city. Verse 14, when she came to him, that's Aksa, she urged him, Othniel, to ask her father, Caleb, for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have set me in a land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. It is one of the few stories, the few accounts in the book of Judges where all the characters are going to be painted in a very favorable light. And you say, really? They're all going to be painted in a favorable light? Because I'm pretty sure I just read something about Caleb giving his daughter away to whoever won the battle. How is that? Favorable, okay. I, don't, I mean, the modern day equivalent. Hey, uh, whoever gets me the best rate on my house, on my mortgage, or gives me the best uh, rate on this car I want, you can marry my daughter. Really? Like, I mean, I, I'd have a hard time walking out of here alive if I said that. So that's what he says. It's an interesting story. In fact, I think with modern readers today, we'd say that's. You go back to verse twelve. That's that's kind of offensive. It almost seems that he is treating his daughter as an object to be awarded to another man for a job well done. So, are you sure this is a favorable story for all the characters in it? I'm sure, but I realize it'll take some explaining to you guys. I think what you need to remember is the cultural significance. Culture matters, okay? And this is important because some of you guys right now, you're sitting in a way, maybe you're sitting, your leg is crossed and the sole of your shoe is exposed in the air. And that's fine. I don't want you guys to move. Just sit there if that's comfortable. But if you were in a Middle Eastern culture, that would be very offensive. My point is, and just even using that one illustration, culture matters. There are certain things that we might perceive as offensive that other people wouldn't perceive as offensive. And obviously that's an example of something we wouldn't perceive as offensive, but in another culture it would be. And I think that's what we have going on with here, with Caleb, Othniel, and Oxa, the three characters in our story. This is a patricentric culture. Patricentric culture. Not to say it's a patriarchal culture, but the New American Commentary, and I really appreciated them shedding light on this, they, they don't use that word because really the negative connotations behind that patriarchy, that is, the rule of the father. That's not what we have here as much as a patricentric culture. And I think this really represents more of the biblical ideal that very much is at play in this story. See, in a patricentric culture, it emphasized the responsibility of the father for the welfare of his household, to take care of his household, to take care of his family members, to, to do what's best for them, rather than in a patriarchy um, in which the emphasis is on the power of the father over the members. So what we have here is a patricentric culture. I think that's much more in line with the biblical ideal of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, where the emphasis is very much put on the father, a lot of weight on his, soul, on his shoulders that he take care of all the household members. It's up to him to take care of his sons, his daughters, his whole family. 
So when you understand that, I think it helps us frame this story in a more appropriate fashion than maybe in a quick knee-jerk reaction, which we're kind of offended by it. Him giving his daughter, you know, over to the guy who wins the video game tournament or, you know, whatever it might be. As crazy as that would sound. So, Othniel, his nephew, goes out, wins the battle, kills the guys, gets to marry Aksa. But she does have a problem. She has a problem. And she actually is going to come and bring that problem to her father. She's going to protest this issue. But the issue that she's protesting has nothing to do with how she's been treated. Her grievance that she's going to bring to her father has nothing to do with feeling devalued as a person, nor would we expect her to feel devalued as a person. In that context, she, she probably felt, honestly, honored to be given in marriage to a hero like Othniel. And that's important to remember, I think, especially within the 2018 world we live in, which tends to be very heavy, feministic, Okay? And, and obviously that word, you can interpret it and define it however you want to, but, but the slightest thing is cause for concern. Um, but that's not the issue she has. She doesn't have a problem with how she's treated. She's fine with that. Rather, what she's going to protest, what she's going to bring to her father's attention, is the land that was given to her husband, Othniel. She refers to this area, and you can see in the text, this land associated with Kiriath-Sefer as the land of the Negev as the Negev land. And it's not because it was located in the Negev, but because it had Negev-like characteristics. It was desert. It was arid-like. And so her concern, if you've got desert land, you might need water. Water's pretty important for growing things. Especially in an agricultural type of society, water's really important. And so she goes and she asks her dad. That's, that's her issue. That's her protest. Ask her dad, Caleb. And he, of course, generously responds, giving her both the upper and the lower springs. But I love Oxa because Oxa in the story is really, I think, just a, an excellent role model. Ladies, you want a role model? It's her. Of womanly propriety. She's going to demonstrate resourcefulness. She's going to come, she's going to analyze the problem, she's going to realize, okay, there's a problem, now she's got to be resourceful, how do we figure out how to navigate, how to fix the problem? And then she does, very diplomatically, in going and approaching her father, and then asking for a blessing. It's not a dowry. Othniel's already been given the land. He won the battle, he got the land. She's asking for a blessing on top of that. She's asking for a blessing on top of that. I love this. It's a, it's a really cool picture here. She comes, she asks her dad, and this is not something that I guess her dad has really thought about. I don't think Othniel maybe really thought about that. And that can happen sometimes, regardless of what century you live in. That can happen. Guys, we, sometimes we just are oblivious to things. Okay, we think, I think the word used is we compartmentalize things. So we have a hard time, like we were like, all right, this is the objective, I gotta go, I gotta take it down, right? And you know, they don't think about the fact, well, we're probably gonna need water, right? Oxa thinks about it, they don't. I mean, they're thinking, all right, hey, let's get together. Hey, Othniel, all right, so what, what's gonna be our avenue of approach? All right, I'm gonna set up uh, an ambush over here on the left flank, we'll maneuver with the right flank up here, we'll be about 200 meters out. I mean, they're just, I mean, you can just see that, right? They're going through this, their objective, what they're thinking about, we gotta kill those guys. We're there to kill them. They're not thinking about 
Oh, yeah. Probably going to need water. That would be a good idea. They're not thinking about that. I don't think that's a problem. Ox is thinking about that. She realizes right away, like, yep, that's a problem. We're going to need some water. And she brings it to her father's attention. He's like, oh, yeah. That makes sense. But in the moment, the moment, neither Caleb nor Othniel seem to be aware of the deficiency of water, something I think we'd all agree on, is pretty important here in the story. But she sees it. And that can happen, right? I think what we have here is, honestly, a beautiful complementary picture of the sexes, of the genders, between Othniel, Caleb, and Oxa. And, and this is what, I, I use the word complementary because that's, I believe, how God designed us. And if you're not familiar, there's really two schools, two ways of thinking about this. Complementarianism and egalitarianism. This would oftentimes be associated with what is modern day kind of feminism. And this tends to be anything you can do, I can do better. And it usually gets brought up in a very practical way within the church when it comes to, say, the role of a pastor. People say, well, women, some women can speak more articulately. They can teach the Bible better than a lot of guys who are pastors. Well, I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that at all. There are some women who are excellent teachers but that's not the issue. You look at a text like, say, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 12 to 14. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For all the women suck at teaching the Bible. Nope, that's not what he says. Not what he says at all. For Adam was formed first and then the woman. It has nothing to do with her abilities. Yes, oftentimes there are certain jobs that women can do just as well, if not better, than guys. But that's not the issue. The issue is Adam was formed first, then Eve. And when you understand that, you begin to step into the biblical world, I believe, of complementarianism, which is the understanding that, yes, we are equally made. Males and females. Those two genders. And I say two. You wouldn't think I need to say two. Just two. Okay? Um, Not 72 not 71. It's just crazy. I'm listening to Al Mohler this week on the briefing, and he's talking about many people are, are, are calling it child abuse for doing gender reveal parties, and how dare they assign a gender to their child? How dare they do these gender reveal problems? In, in, in New York City, the good and great and honorable uh, mayor has decided that they need to put a gender X on the birth certificate now as a third option. It's not, that's not just pagan. That's just evil. Okay? Open rebellion to the king and what he has said. And coming back to that idea, you, you want to know men and women? Are we equal? Yes. Why? Because the Bible says so. That's my short answer. You want to know what the greatest statement of equality is between the genders? He made them male and female in the image of God. He created them. That is the greatest statement you'll ever hear of equality between the sexes the Imago Dei statement of the early Genesis account. That's it. And we are totally equal, and yet God has designed us, God has designed us to have different roles. Not a matter of talent or ability, but He has a design. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, when his reason for his explanation, for Adam was formed first than Eve. Why? Because God made Adam first. Because God has certain roles He wants the men to fill, and He has certain roles He wants women to fill. 
That's why guys don't have babies. That's, that's a role designed for women. Why? Because that's how God made it. And you see, whether it's 2018 or going back to the Genesis account, how the devil comes and he tries to twist God's design, God's design, and twist it and warp it. That's what's going on today in New York City or other, other places. It's exactly what's happening. You know, men and women are totally equal, and yet God has different roles, and those roles are, are good, and those roles should complement each other, and we see that on display in this story. These guys are thinking, how do we go and kill those guys, right? That's all they're thinking about. Ox is thinking, mm, we're going to need water, right? Brings it to her dad's attention. Yeah, we didn't really think about that. And as I said, that can happen, regardless of what century you live in. I remember back when I lived in the dorms. When I lived in the dorms. <laughs> I had one fork, one bowl, one knife, one spoon, right? That's all you need. <laughs> the guys, I'm pretty sure half the guys can, can really just connect with that, right? That's all you need. One bowl, one spork, one spoon, or one spoon. <laughs> I don't know what that was. People say, didn't you have a plate? I didn't need a plate. You know what my plate was? Top of my laptop right here. I get the bread out, I lay it there, and I make my peanut butter and jelly sandwich right here in the, you know, very carefully, of course, but I make it right here on the top of my laptop. True story. So, at the end of my seven-year journey on the dorms, and I, and, I, and I went and I moved off campus, I realized, well, might need some additional things. I had, I had my own set of stuff, so I went out and I bought two spoons. <laughs> Two forks, two knives, two bowls, two cups, two plates. Okay? Man, there is a hashtag hospitality right there, if I've ever thought. <laughs> and then I met my wife, Diana. <laughs> and she didn't understand why my cupboards were so bare. So I explained the logic. I have my own set, and I have a set for two if we have two guests come. And she's like, so that's really, with me, one guest. I was like, yeah. And she's like, what happens if we have more than one guest come? I hadn't really thought that far through that. Right? <laughs> right? But, but, but you see the, the complementary nature, right? Caleb and Othniel, they don't think about the fact they're going to need water. Oxa does. She realizes this. How are you going to grow something in this arid, desert-like place without water. And then, of course, when she tells her dad, he's like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that. But I love how she approaches this, okay? Because, and you go back to, let's see what verse I want to go to. I want to go to verse 14. If you can throw that on the screen, please. 14. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. Now, for whatever reason, she ends up being the one to ask Caleb. And it says in verse 14, And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? Now that phrase, when she dismounted from her donkey, is very important. You wouldn't think of it, right? It'd be like I pulled in the driveway, I got out of the car, I asked my dad. It is way more meaningful than just that. In the original language and in the culture, how this is being used is she is expressing deep parental respect in her physical posture in coming off the donkey before her father. She is showing great, great deference to her father. She's being really, really respectful. And that's what I love about this story because she's not a brat. She's not a brat. 
And you see this, right? Sometimes, like, sometimes we don't always respond the way we should when it comes to our parents. And she could have easily said, Dad, you're a moron. How did you not think about this? You're an idiot. She could have came off just guns blazing, just totally disrespectful, chewing him out because he hadn't thought about this, right? I mean, he's got a lot on, a lot on his plate. He's got a lot he's thinking about, but he hadn't thought about that. But that's not how she responds. She shows great parental respect in her physical posture before her father in dismounting from her donkey. You wouldn't think that was a big of a deal. It was. It's a great act of deference to her father. And then she makes the ask, Dad, will you give me this? And of course he responds, not just positively, he gives her really double of what she's asking for. It reminds me of what Solomon says in Proverbs 25, 15. With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. She's very diplomatic. She analyzes the problem. She's incredibly resourceful. And she's not a brat about this. She's so respectful. And she persuades her father. As Solomon says, a soft tongue has the power to break a bone. Love this story. Love this story. All the characters really painted in a very positive light in this story. And the ironic thing, Aksa, Othniel, Caleb, none of them are... Israelites. None of them are ethnically Hebrew people. They're Kenizzites. Kenizzites. That's, that's who these people are. Kenizzites, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, 19, these people descended from Kenaz. He was an Edomite chieftain. They're, they are descendants from Esau. They're not, they're not even Israelites. And yet, they're here in a positive showcase Representing not just Israel, but the largest, really most powerful tribe, Judah. I think it's remarkable. And this isn't anything new. Back when Caleb was a young man, he was out doing recon missions with Joshua, representing, representing Judah. Nothing new. And you see here, I think, just a powerful testimony to the love of God. A powerful testimony, Right? If anyone will call upon the name of the Lord, he'll be saved. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you're from, your socioeconomic background. Like the gospel, what Jesus did for us on the cross, when he lived the life we could not live, when he died the death we should have died, when he paid the price we could not afford to pay, that is for all people, if you will but come. The gospel is totally all-inclusive. And we see that on display here because none of these people are Israelites. And yet they seem to be fully integrated and counted as the people of God representing the tribe of Judah. Oh, the gospel is such good news for that reason. Especially for, I imagine, the close to 100% of us in this room who are not ethnically Hebrew people. That's really good news. It's good news for the chief of sinners. For those of us who abuse God's grace. That's good news for us. The gospel is totally inclusive. And that's a hot button word today. Like, and so oftentimes people love to hear how the gospel is so inclusive. And it is. If anyone would but come, right? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. If you will but come. And a lot of people, 
I think they love to focus on the love of God and the inclusivity of the gospel. But the gospel, while it is inclusive, totally inclusive, is also totally exclusive. In other words, it matters how you come. And a lot of people, they want to come to God, idols in hand, right? Last week was National Coming Out Day, apparently, in my news feed. An old classmate of mine with John chapter 832 painted in rainbow colors how the truth will set you free. Which the interesting thing is when Jesus said that, he was telling Israel that, oh, by the way, you think you are descendants of Abraham? You're not. You're descendants of the devil. Oh, the truth will set you free. You think you're good to go because you're ethnically Israelites. You're not good to go at all. And so I see that painted there. And so a lot of people love to, they love to focus on the love of God while ignoring the word of God. I'll say that again, it bears repeating. A lot of people love to focus on the love of God, certain attributes of God. It just, they like that. It fits well into their worldview that they just make up while ignoring the word of God. They love to focus on the love of God while ignoring the word of God. Let me tell you, it matters how you come to Jesus. I can stand up here all day long and talk about how the gospel is inclusive, right? And we see it pictured here with these three characters, anyone who would but come, but it matters how you come. It matters how you come. It matters how you come. And this is, this is huge, especially this is oftentimes in liberal Protestant Christianity in air quotes because it deserves to be there. They'll say this, right? They'll, they'll only focus on the things they want to focus on while ignoring the other parts of Scripture. No, the gospel's totally inclusive. It doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done, who you are, if you but come, right? But come how? Come to Him. Well, who is He? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is one way. It's through the Son. It is through faith and repentance of our sins. But the problem is, is we don't want to repent of our sins. We want to hold on to those idols and we want to basically make up our own version of Christianity and come to him however we want to while ignoring what God's word actually says. That's my point. And the picture here is fantastic. None of these people are ethnically Israelites and yet they're fully integrated into these covenant people of God. Such a positive story. Othniel, Caleb, Aksa. Well, the story... Is not quite over yet. We go to verse 16. It says, And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, you should know verse 16 is a flashback. Moses is still alive at this point. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms in the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and, uh-oh, no, they didn't. They settled with the people. That's a big no-no. They're not supposed to be settling with the people. Okay. They're not supposed to be selling the people at all. They're supposed to go and drive the people from the land. They're supposed to go and kill all the people. Because the concern is, it's already happened multiple times, the concern is that by failing to drive them out, they'll be tempted to become just like them. Of course, this fits well into the theme of the story, the canonization of Israel. Israel, you're supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be like everyone else. And of course, they've already struggled with it. In verses 5 to 7, when they cut off the king, Adonai Bezek, his thumbs and his toes... Because everybody did that, so they just do it too. That's what the culture did at that time. And so they do it too. They just join in with whatever the culture says is okay. And here, they're disobeying God. They're settling with the people. The descendants of the Kenite Moses. And I realize in Scripture it mentions um, 
The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, he's Midianite, not Kenite. And as best as we can tell, because I'm sure someone will bring this up in small group, is that Moses' father-in-law, yes, he was Midianite, but that Kenites, we best understand that as a clan or a subgroup of the Midianites. But they settled with the people, and that was the problem. That's the issue. They're compromising. What does God say? God says not to settle with the people. God says to drive them from the land to kill them all. And what do they do? They don't do that. Compromise. They're compromising. Oh, it's going to happen again before we're even done with this story. Now, come back to present day. And Judah went with Simeon, verse 17. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. Okay, good, good. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had iron chariots. They had chariots of iron, verse 20. And Hebron was given to Caleb, flashback, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So the real issue here is at the end of verse 19, they got a couple victories, they got a couple W's, they got a couple wins underneath their belt, but they, they don't fully drive out the inhabitants of the Canaanites because they had iron chariots. Today, verses 9 through 20, it really describes Judah's campaign in the lowlands versus Judah's campaign last week in the highlands. Iron chariots, chariots made of iron or iron-plated, this is advanced technology. Okay? This is like whatever is the latest stuff out there, this is it. But even chariots with the latest, greatest stuff, they don't work well in mountainous terrains. They don't well. Chariots work really well in open plains and flat ground. They didn't have this issue during the Highland campaign. Here in the lowlands, it's an issue. It's an issue. And as we see in verse 19, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. The infantry of Judah were unable to devise an effective strategy against this state-of-the-art military technology. They weren't able to. Why? What does that change? What does it change? Many of you were here for the sermon series through Joshua. Okay? You were there the day in which the sun stood still. That one man prayed and God answered and listened to one man's prayer, Joshua's prayer, and he caused the sun. He said, sun, stand still. The sun stops, right? Rather, the earth's rotation stops, causes the sun to stand still to give the people extra daylight so they could kill the enemy. And actually, at the end of that day's battle, God had killed more people by throwing hailstones down than their infantry defeated with the sword. So if God can do that, I mean, iron chariots might be kind of like the F-22s of their day, or Apache helicopters, whatever it might be, but really? They've got God. So what's the problem here? How does this negate Yahweh's help? I think we need to read this in lieu of Joshua chapter 17, 16 to 18. I don't have it on the screen, but listen with your ears, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect the dots here for a second. Joshua chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 16 to 18. The people of Joseph... 
It's one of the tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. They said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain, they have chariots of iron, both these and Bashin and the villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 17, then Joshua said of the house of Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. Those two tribes make up the house of Joseph. You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. Though it is a forest, you shall clear its possession to its farthest borders, for you shall drive out, hear this, for you shall drive out the Canaanites. This is while Joshua is alive. This is the promise he gives to them. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So what in the world is going on here? Why are they not able to defeat them? I get it. They got advanced technology, chariots, don't work well in the mountains. They work well in the open plains. What's the problem here? Why could they not take the lowlands? Why is God's presence canceled by superior military technology? Well, the narrator doesn't say. But we can presume that the people of Judah, I think, two things. We can presume that they had a failure of nerve at this point and that they were satisfied with past achievements. I think they had a failure of nerve. Open chariots, rather, chariots that are iron-plated on open fields will tear apart infantry units. Tear them apart. I think they're a little nervous. I think they maybe lost their nerve here. I think there's certainly fear that they might have experienced. Like, that will decimate it. Like, you don't have the numbers, okay? That's like, like your, your middle school football team trying to go against like the 6-0 Rams. Like, uh, I've, I've crunched the numbers. You're going to get destroyed if you run infantry units up against these iron-plated chariots. And I think they know that. I think they're scared. I think they lose their nerve, quite frankly. That, and I think, I think they're satisfied with past achievements. And so what do they do? They, they compromise. They literally take the ball, go 99 yards, and then they realize, yeah, I'm just going to take a knee right here at the one-yard line. Instead of pressing forward, like Joshua has already promised them back when he was alive, they got superior technology, won't be an issue. Why? Because of who your God is. Do you not know who he is? Do you not remember all the things he's done? There's issues, right, in these moments of unbelief. Our unbelief is checked. I think their unbelief is certainly checked. The narrator doesn't say it, but I think it's entirely fair to presume that. That and their, well, they're satisfied with past achievements. Well, we, we won this battle, we won this battle, we won this battle. Let's, let's just call it a day, right? And so on the 99-yard line, right, going 99 yards down, right, on the 1-yard line, they just take a knee. They compromise. They're not supposed to compromise, but that's part of the theme of Judges, right? The canonization of Israel. They're, they're being pulled constantly away from God to be like God and obey God. And they compromise. They're not supposed to compromise. They're supposed to obey. Let me just say this. Think about this. When it comes to obeying God, partial obedience does not impress God. Don't think you're a hot shot because you took the ball 99 yards and then you're like at the one yard line and then in that moment you have unbelief sets in and you're like, yeah, I can't do this, right? 
If God's taken you the 99 yards, right? If he's done all these things for you, why don't you trust him? Why don't you trust him? Partial obedience does not impress God. God doesn't want partial obedience. God wants total obedience. That's the essence of surrender. Like, I'm stepping aside. I'm laying it down. This includes dying to self and the desires of my flesh and fully submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of his lordship. And oh, by the way, if he really is lord and king, you can't tell him no. That negates him being Lord. You don't tell the Lord, you don't tell the king, no. There's one answer, yes. And so they compromise. Just like the people did in verse 16 when they settled. I'm sure they thought, oh, it won't be that. It'll it'll work out. It'll be okay. No, because God said not to do this. You're not supposed to settle in the land. You're supposed to drive the enemies out from the land. We're going back to last week's sermon, right? You don't cut off the king's thumbs and his toes. Well, everybody does it. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. Why do you keep compromising when God's ways are so clear? Why don't you fully trust and obey him and the promises and the faithfulness that have already been on display time and time again? So that's the story. A positive, wonderful example of Othniel and Caleb and Aksa, really in womanly propriety and ingenuity. And then the rest, where people compromise. I'm sure they were justifying along the way. Well, you know, it's okay, because one thing or another. No, no, no. Be like Othniel, be like Caleb, be like Aksa. Don't be like the rest of them. Don't compromise. Don't take it 99 yards and then kneel on the one-yard line because in that moment you lose your nerve or you're satisfied with past achievements. Don't. If he's big enough to take you the 99 yards, he's big enough to take you the rest of the way into the end zone. So as the band comes, I'd like to pray for us, guys. Lord, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. That is it. That is the only reason why. And I thank you for your love. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, God, that you're for us. Lord, I pray you'd protect us from compromise. I pray you'd protect us from unbelief in those moments that seep in and we think, oh no, I'm afraid. I'm scared to live in total Obedience, and then as a result, we only partially obey you. God, help us to be like the wonderful examples in the story of Caleb, Othniel, and Aksa. We need you, Jesus. Protect us, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.